So not only did I have to clean up that glass, but it was really the best lesson I ever got because I suddenly realized these are not the people I want in my life. Their values are not mine. We don't have anything in common. Why I had been seduced or had let myself be seduced into thinking that these were wonderful people just because they had some status in the community. I realized then that that's never going to again be my standard. My gold standard is somebody with a brain and a heart. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. For the audience, you should know that Billy has walked this earth for 96 years, and so in that she has seen many things, experienced many things, learned many things. But I don't think, Billy, you were ever in a pandemic. Is that correct? No, but I was about eight years old when when I heard when I was born, about eight years after the 18 pandemic. And I heard all the stories when I was a child about how terrible it was because there was no family that escaped. In my own mother's family, she had the Spanish flu. So did her mother and father, and they recovered, but a brother died. And there was somebody in every family that they knew who died. I lived in Louisiana, and it was, of course, as prevalent there as everywhere else in the country. And their biggest problem was, as they used to relate it to me, was where are they going to find people to bury these folks? There was too many people too sick to even think about that. So I heard all these stories, but then all this time has passed, you know, a hundred years ago. And so it was part of my consciousness always. There you go. So so how have you, we're now in, I don't know, month five or? Five months. I've been locked down. You've been locked down in your home uh, with virtually no visitors. No visitors. Yeah, no visitors. So how have you, like... How have you processed all this? How have you have you thought about it? How I have. I've, as a matter of fact, I've thought about it quite a lot, and I've thought about it a lot after I even I read your first the podcast about doing nothing. This has been ironically a great time for me, and I, although the sadness in my heart for those people who have been sick and who who have died, and particularly those people who are taking care of all our sick patients, I have. Normally, I ran around a lot. I did a lot. I mean, I was physically going to a lot of places. Now, I don't go anywhere, um, but my life has been very, very rich for five months. I live in a senior residence, and they have a local television, local access television for us. And every single day, they, they do two exercise classes, which I do. They have courses every morning. They have lectures every morning and midday. They have concerts. One day, just two days ago, last Friday, I listened to Seiji Ozawa's final concert that that he played when he left the symphony orchestra. I listened to the same day, Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe, two of the greatest world, greatest performers of pianists and cellists, an hour after that. And then that at five o'clock, 
for an hour and 45 minutes, I listened to Dr. Fauci talking at the Harvard School of Public Health about what's involved in a vaccine. So it's incredibly rich life that I have. And I read my two newspapers cover to cover almost literally every day. And I do my two exercise classes. And I don't even need to think about a nap because I'm, I'm not tired. And I do have a lot of reflective time, which I've found very rich. I've, there are things that, that I took for granted before that I have really great appreciation for. I have time to think about a subject that I have in my mind that I want to think about. And I never took all that time before. And I, I speak to some people on the phone and I can, that's a very active uh, action for me because I don't just listen passively. Right. You know, I, I listen. Fully engaged. Well, I am. It's an, I'm very active when I'm listening. Yeah. I care about the people that I, I don't have too many people in my life that I don't care about. I don't have the time for that. And so those people who I do care about, I'm not only listening with my ears, but I'm listening with my eyes. I imagine how they're looking as they're talking about what they're talking about. I listen with my heart. I listen with my gut. And so I'm, I feel like I'm very active when I'm listening to somebody. And I have the time for that now. So that's pretty wonderful. With it, with it all, I'm so, I am also acutely aware of the sadness and the despair and, and the chaos and, and anxiety in homes as well. It is, a, it is a stark contrast, you know, in, the, in some of the things I've been writing and, and some of the other podcast conversations I've had. It does seem like, yet again, there's this divide in our country of the people that are almost happily sequestered at home and aren't worrying about their next paycheck and can use the time for contemplation and even deeper connection with selves, with, love, with self, with loved ones. I mean, you hear lots of stories about people awakening during this very difficult period. And meanwhile, a large percentage of our society and including other parts of the world are, you know, just struggling to, to feed themselves or their children or, or, you know, I was reading a, a piece today about the evictions beginning to happen in Washington, DC and, you know, the furniture and clothing piling up on the sidewalk as people. It's just so heartbreaking. You know, I, I think you use the word confusing. It's, it's, it's a very confusing time, I think, on many levels for, for you know, many, many of us. I wanted to ask you a question about you and I over the years. So I've, I've, for the audience, I've, I've known Billy, I don't know, 30, 40, 30 years? At least. At least. And she, you and I have talked over the years about our development, right? Like the journey of, of being human and, and, and continuing to, to learn and grow. Billy was kind enough to be one of the first readers of my book, this is it, which is really about my my journey. My question for you is: Have you always been on the on the personal development path, or I'm not sure I ever asked you this. Did, did did that kick in at a certain age, or were you wired that way as a child? Like I was wired that way as a child. Is that right? <laughs> I was. I, I I first of all, I think I had to be. I was unusually ahead of myself. I learned to read when I was four. And when I was five, my mother took me down to the principal of elementary school and asked him to go and pick out any book that first graders read or to get the books that they read in class. And she said, she will read them to you. And I did. And so when I was five years old, 
I was in the first grade. And when I went to the second grade, I was six years old, but I only stayed there six weeks before they moved me to the third grade. So when I was six years old, I was in the third grade. So I think my own personal development, you know, started from the fact that I was so crazy about reading. And I spent years reading with, with a flashlight under, after my, you know, the curfew was over in my bed. But I also had a very, very troubling and difficult and really awful childhood. And my father was a, an abusive alcoholic and someone had got hurt in my family every day. I, I, it never was I because he's the one taught me to read. And so he thought, you know, the sun rose and set right on top of my head, but I, I could not prevent anybody else from getting hurt. So I, I, I think my personal development really started as a strategy of how to live. And I remember, for instance, nobody ever taught me this, but I learned very early on by the time I was about eight to give myself a, a time to worry and then to go immediately and change my situation. And so I, to this day, I do that, for instance. I, if something is really bothering me or if anything is really hurtful to me or I had a really problem, a problem that was really upsetting, I give myself 20, 20, 30 minutes, whatever I feel like at the time. And then I change my clothes and I leave the premises and I go and do something different. And so along all the way, for instance, after I was married and after my children were born, I took the 16-year course of the Great Decisions, uh, was, which was developed by the Chancellor at University of Chicago, Hutchinson, of the 100 greatest books in uh, Western culture and Western civilization. And that was a 16-year program. And I read those 100 books under the guidance of a very fine, fine, fine leader. And I finished that. How how old were you then? Well, I had three children in eighteen months, and uh, and they they were born when I was the last one was born when I was twenty four, and I I think I started that program when I was twenty six. There you go. So I just you know my own personal development, but 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 my development as a human really came that my develop that that is my development in study, but my personal development and my personal growth and thinking about the kind of person that I wanted to be somewhere along the line when I was about 35, I think I stopped, I stopped running for mayor. I stopped <laughs> worrying if somebody was going to like me. And I began to turn inward to think about what it would be like to set my compass every morning to true north and see if, if the world w would follow me that day and see what I was doing, would it be better? And I think I, to some degree, without being formal about it, I think I still do that. And I like you, I feel so for all these people who, you know, who have to go to work. I'll just give you an example. The person who cleans my house was not allowed to come here for five, almost five months. She just came back last week for the first time. And in the meantime, she was placed in the, in the nursing home here where there were 26 deaths. She's the head of a household. She is a black woman. She's the head of a household of 11, six children and five adults. The other four lost their job or were furloughed or laid off, and they're not working, and she's the only one of the working. And she, if she was sick, she'd have to continue to work. And she took two buses morning and two buses in the evening to get there and back. 
And when she came back last week, she said to me, Billy, I was so afraid. I cried every single morning until it was time to get on the bus. And I cried every single night when I came home. And she said, I cried enough tears to float away a boat. And I don't know if I can do it again. How can you not have thoughts about that and worry about that and concern about that and feelings, deep feelings about that and about all the people like her in this country? So I don't know about my personal development. I guess it's just my, where my personal heart, where it is. I don't know. Do you remember what the trigger was that made you realize that seeking of the validation of others was maybe not the healthiest path for you? Well, you said, you said a few minutes ago that you, you realized that sort of, you know, running for mayor was not really serving you best. You know, seeking popularity was not really the best path for you. Was there a trigger? Did something happen in your life that made you realize that? Or was it just sort of a slow? No, it wasn't slow. It was, it was a dramatic thing. Uh, we had invited some people for, New Year, for Christmas Eve, and we had little children then. And of course, a lot of the toys, you know, said needs some, you know, construction or needs some, you know, what, what it was. And we had, a, when this party was going to be over at midnight, we knew we had to finish up with the children's toys. And somewhere along the line, and there were, I think there were three other couples there. One of them threw a glass I think we drank cocktails in those days, threw a glass to my, at my fireplace and hit the bricks and broke. And the second one thought that must have thought that was fun because all six of them did that. So not only did I have to clean up that glass, but it was really the best lesson I ever got because I suddenly realized these are not the people I want in my life. Their values are not mine. We don't have anything in common. Why, why I had been seduced or had let myself be seduced into thinking that these were wonderful people just because they had some status in the community. I realized then that that's never going to again be my standard. My gold standard is somebody with a brain and a heart. And, and I didn't think that showed either. And so I never saw those folks again. And I was never the same again after that night. You, I think the last time we were together, I can't remember. One of the things we talked about was the importance of curating your life, you know, like like surrounding yourself with the right people, the right experiences. And, and, and I think the, you know, the beauty of your age, and I would include myself at my age, is that it's much, the importance of curation is very real. You know, like, you know, it's not like we have infinite time left on this earth. So, so much of our lives are a function of experience, right? Like, who we are with and, and what we are doing with those people. And yet I think a large percentage of people find themselves accidentally in a room with a bunch of people throwing glasses at a brick fireplace. And I think more, more sadly, not, not being willing to do anything about that. You know, I, I think there, there's a piece of this for me, which is, is around courage, you know, and have you ever, and this is a funny question, but have you ever felt fear? Cause I've, I've only known you to be the most brave person I, you know, in my life. So has fear been a part of your life growing up? Uh, I started my life with fear. I, I lived every day of my life with fear till I left home. And I, and I didn't get out of fear till I left home. As a matter of fact, when I met my husband, I asked him to marry me one week after I met him. <laughs> That's courageous. It was the first time in my life 
I ever knew a man. And I had been, I lived, I worked on an army base, an air force base. So I, there was plenty of men and we, and women there, you know, all had as many dates as they ever wanted. And uh, I don't think I ever really knew how to trust a man until I met him. But I knew, I knew within a week that this is what I wanted from my life. And so I think I've shown, I've shown by decisions that I've made to myself that I can make good decisions and it will affect my destiny. And so when it comes to fear, of course I have fears like everybody else. And I have, you know, disappointments like everybody else. Nobody goes out, gets out scot-free without those things. I try to, I try to say 99% of what we fear does not come true. So how am I going to approach this very moment? How will I get out of it this very moment? Most of the time, how I get out of it is to go and read something or go on a computer. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night and I have something bothering me, I don't stay in bed. I get up and I go pick a subject and I go on a computer and research it. I just, it, it's a strategy that it's a coping mechanism. You know, it's a strategy that it works for me. I can't say that everybody can use it. Yeah. You mentioned that you had uh, three kids in 18 months. That must have been uh, an experience. <laughs> My God. Well, in some ways, in some ways, that's why I don't worry about how <laughs> I will fare during this whole pandemic. And I thoroughly expect it's going to be as equally long from this point as it has been up to this point. Yeah, I think everybody does. In some way, when I had three children all at once, and by the way, of course, if you obviously know that Two of them happened to have bad to be twins. Really? I didn't leave my house once for one year. I didn't. I, my husband had gone into business uh, without much uh, financial backing, and we, he just couldn't draw the kind of salary that would have made our life so that I could afford a babysitter. I couldn't afford a dryer, so I had to. He didn't have pampers in those days, so I had to hang up diapers for three children every day and take them down and fold them as well as, you know, do all the housework and whatever I had to do to take care of those three children. And I couldn't leave for one year, not even to go out to buy a dozen eggs. And I used to think if somebody would just give me the greatest present in the world and say, I have the greatest present in the world to give you, I'm going to give you four hours all by yourself while I stay here and take care of these children. My mother was 2,000 miles away. My mother-in-law worked and I could not leave. And so you were, in you were in quarantine. I was definitely in quarantine for a year. So I know I, one of the things I guess I learned from my mistakes or learned from my situations is that I, I, was, I made that. I was tough enough to get through that. And I'll do what it takes to get through this. I did it and, and I will. You know, I, I guess you just learn how when you have to be on your own and you have to learn how um, to be resilient. And you have to learn how you have to make good decisions and 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 just and how you can support yourself to you know to feel competent and to feel confident for all the the listeners who have young kids what did you learn about being a mom or being a parent or oh i've learned so much oh chris i've learned so much because i made so many mistakes i guess i guess i didn't have great role models you know for parents and that's one place where the most important thing you'll do, you don't get any lessons for. You know, if, you, if you're going to learn to drive a car, you have to take lessons. But this is on-the-job training. And all you do is bring your baggage with it. And those children are born a blank slate. 
and then we start to write on them. Well, the only thing I knew were some of the mistakes, you know, that, that my parents made, you know, like making you sit there till you finish your dinner. You know, we used to hear those stories about all, all those starving Asians, you know, who had no food and it was a sin to waste food. So I, I did the same thing. I didn't know any other way. When I think about it now, I think it's the most stupid thing I ever did. And I've told my children many times about the mistakes I made. My only defense is that I was present. I read everything I could read about being a parent. And if I'd have known better, I would have done better. And that's my, that's the only thing I have to say about that. In terms of today, my heart just goes out to mothers, particularly to fathers too. But I think mothers on the whole are working at home and they have their children and they, they never get a break. They just never off duty. And I think, you know, a lot of the cooking falls onto them, a lot of the childcare, a lot of the homeschooling falls on them, as well as their work. I think it's an extremely hard time right now for young parents. And I just feel like, well, they just can never do nothing. Right. Yeah, I, I, I've often wondered, you know, this is all pre-pandemic about the pace of the world coupled with both parents working, coupled with it's now a lot of jobs are 24-7 responsibilities. You know, you're expected to return emails on Saturday afternoon. And, and just how exhausting that is for both, both people, if it is a couple, how particularly exhausting it is for a single parent. And that, you know, off, as you said, oftentimes sort of if there are two people involved, the mom tends to carry even more of the load. And I just, I worry, and this is in part what, what the book I'm writing now is about is, is worrying about the, the, the accidental consequences of a lot of what technology has done in terms of accelerating pace of everything and in that accelerating causing, you know, really unfair burden, if you will, on people, particularly young families. And it's just, you know, I, I, I worry about, I worry that if we don't slow it down, it's not going to, it's not going to end well. You know, it's just, it's, it's untenable. I mean, here, here's a factoid, which is the number of new births are, are plummeting in the United States. That's true. Well, I think people, and I think, you know, the same thing has happened with real estate. The real estate market is up. There's just not enough inventory because people have realized that they have two or three kids in an apartment, they don't have enough room because they just, it's just too small for them. And so they're looking for a house. But the point is this. I feel, Chris, you're onto something really important. It is, it's really untenable in a way. For instance, I even hear birds now, things that I just took for granted. I never used to listen to birds. I took for granted that, you know, my house would get cleaned. Now I just find joy in just clean floors, you know, just having a clean house. When you slow down, you notice small things. And when you make your life small, it's manageable. It helps more. You don't get quite, you don't have the same high expectations that everybody has to be perfect. You know, I think you have to find some stratagems that simply will keep you all going and try to just narrow down the area where there's any conflict at all. And I don't know how you do that, to tell you the truth, because I'm not in that situation. But I just feel so for young families who are both parents working remotely at home and children resenting them not being with them every minute. And it's just difficult. Yeah, difficult. The, you know, the idea of slowing down, I started another, I don't know, 
not podcast, I was just writing about this issue of, of acceleration. And I specifically started thinking about freedom of speech and freedom to bear arms and the Constitution and the fact that when those laws were passed, things were much slower. So, for example, freedom of speech back then, if you wanted to impart your speech, your point of view, uh, it was actually pretty hard. You, you know, you had to either find a tree stump to stand on in the middle of the village town square, or you had to find a, a letterpress printer to print your flyers. I mean, it was, it was hard to get your speech heard back then. Uh, similarly, in terms of bearing arms, it was actually pretty laborious to to load your rifle. It, it, I was reading, just reading about it. it, took three minutes to reload your rifle. So three minutes, which is actually, you know, a long time. And And fast forward to today, and obviously on the freedom of speech front, there, there are no, there are no governors anymore. There are no limitations. You know, with social media, you can spew anything you want, whenever you want to whoever you want immediately. There's, there's literally no limitations, no barriers. And then on the, on the freedom to bear arms front, it's also sped up to the point where an AK, so that same three minute period that it took to reload a rifle with one, one shot, in three minutes, an AK-47 can shoot 600 rounds. It's incredible, isn't it? Well, another thing, one of the reasons for that, the Second Amendment, is there was no standing army. There was not even a standing army during the Civil War, up to the Civil War. So they really needed the people to arm themselves to be a militia, if in case that that was needed. So that the needs are entirely different. The solutions are entirely different. And like, like you say, the idea of an AK-47 in the midst of a crowd is so horrendous. And you can just tick off all of these horrible, horrible massacres that we've seen uh, in, in this past five or six years. And it seems to me to be getting worse. And now with the country so polarized and encouraged to be polarized, you know, we're, we're in terrible danger. So there is a case where technology, it really is it's very detrimental to the health of our society. I'm glad you're working on that because that, that's, you know, those are points that need to be made over and over and over. And how are we ever going to get out of this? I don't know. I don't either, but I'm going to keep trying. I want to shift gears and talk about a man we both love very much, Arnold Rosoff. And you were married for how many years? 65. 65 years. What did you learn? Oh, I learned so much from him. <laughs> what did you learn? Oh, I learned so much from him. I think the thing I learned the very most is I had all my life learned because I needed to think very quickly. And I got in a habit of not needing more than about 50, 60% of information to make a decision. And so I made rather hasty decisions before I really lived with him for a length of time. But he would say to me, but Bill, on the other hand, and he taught me to look at a different side with everything and broadened out my whole life by having me look at another side. For instance, I forgave my parents. I, I could look at another side of them and, and come to a and just, you know, come to uh, be okay with all that or accept that and not, not be bitter about it anymore. Um, he taught me family loyalty in such a way that I never could ever forget that. He was a major in the Air Force. And when we came home at the end of the war, 
there was no housing. So we lived with his, his parents for about two and a half years. And we all we were very habitual in that whole thing. My father-in-law owned a restaurant. He came home at 10 o'clock, took off his jacket and put on a velvet smoking jacket. We all listened to the 11 o'clock news together and went to bed at 1130. And one, after about a year or two of that, my mother-in-law and I, who, and we always got along really well because they were fabulous people. But that particular night, my mother-in-law got into some edgy kind of conversation. I don't remember what the subject was. It wasn't awful hostile or anything like that, but it was edgy. And so after a few minutes of that, Arnold said, let's stop it now. Bill's right. And let's just don't hear any more about it. And when we, the news was over and we went to bed, he pulled me down beside him on the bed. And I was sitting next to him and he said, Bill, you were wrong in there. My mother was right. And I said, but you told me I was right. He said, I will to my dying day. I will support you. But in return for that, I have to ask you to give me permission to tell you privately when I think you're wrong. And I, and I never had anything but that kind of loyalty from him. And I never, myself, I, I learned that. And, and that became a, a very important part of me. And I think I taught that to my girls, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As, as he did. We just learned from each other. He learned a lot from me as well. You know, the first point you made about making sure that you consider the other side, making sure you get, you know, more information or all the information, I can't help but sort of contrast that with the way the conversation is happening in the United States right now. And it's so polarized and so partisan. And, you know, my view is neither side is considering the other side, that, that we've just sort of lost that capacity to meet in the middle, to be considerate of, you know, different perspectives. It's just, it's just gone to these extremes that, again, can't be can't end well, can't, can't, you know, can't get us to the right destination, I don't think. I think you're right. You can't breach that because it's too deep now and too ingrained in them. And so on both sides, and I, I just don't, I don't know how we're going to get past this. I don't know how it can ever go back to what it was. How do you ever restore civility when, when people are talking to each other without respect, without any serious, you know, wanting to hear what you have to say? I don't know how we're going to do it. It has rendered the Congress, for instance, absolutely incapable of making any decisions. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and it got into a similar track. And I said, I, I mean, to accept that there is no solution is troubling, obviously. And so my stance is kind of one person at a time. Like the, the, more, the more of us that, that can raise the the consciousness of others and a recognition that we need to we need to move to a different path that is more collaborative and more caring and open and and you know willing to meet in the middle like one person it's sort of like one person at a time you know it's like the aa one day at a time this is like the one one person at a time and i think i that's sort of how i'm i guess accepting the situation is saying listen i'm just going to you know and eventually we'll have a majority and eventually, hopefully, there's a leadership at every level of government and corporations. I think they have a role to play that that is of the same 
is of the same sort of mindset. Uh, another an interesting thing related to that, which I know you'll you'll spark to, is I was on a call earlier today with a guy named Richard Barrett, who's a very deep thinker, author, researcher, philosopher, and he studied basically the health and well-being of countries, not not purely on a GDP level, but on a collective how happy are the citizens kind of level. And one of the things he points out is the of the top 10 countries in the world right now as measured by happiness of their citizenry, I believe six or seven are led by women. Well, I saw that. I saw that. And, and I know the worst countries and the, and the worst, for instance, in terms of the pandemic, led by men. But I don't like to have to think of, uh, in those terms. I'd like it to be so that everybody is thinking, it's, you know, elevated a little bit, thinking about other people and thinking about what's healthy and good for other people as well as of the, themselves. This is like capitalism run amok. It's just really, I saw in a paper yesterday, someone who said something that made me feel, made me kind of feel it expressed this age. She said, I feel as if I'm in a car on an endless car ride being driven by a drunk. Oh, God. What, well, you know, <laughs> doesn't that sort of sum up what's the desperation that some people are feeling? Yeah, and, and I would add to that an, an endless car ride where we, we have no idea what the destination is. That's what it is. Because, and it's being driven by a drunk so that you can't, you just don't know. Then I, so I agree with you 100%. That I think maybe some people have turned around a little bit during this. I'm hoping so. I think, I think particularly politically, they're talking about, you know, suburban wives who've just felt like they've had enough and that they, they, what they, what they know is wrong is wrong. And so they've determined to try to elevate their own thinking. And I'm just hoping enough people will do that, that can, we can make some changes in this country. It's funny. I wrote a piece recently on integrity and somebody responded to it and tried to convince me that integrity was simply having a, your own set of beliefs and versus my definition of integrity is moral integrity, where there's some human standards involved that are non-negotiable. And this, this guy, and we had a several back and forth emails about it, you know, was pretty adamant that as example, our president has integrity but it's his integrity and i and i just would but not that's not integrity that's not integrity that is certainly not integrity so we have a few minutes left i'd love you just to to make a wish make a wish for the world make a wish for america like you now have a magic wand what do you wish for people you know in your next 96 years on this planet what do you want to see unfold that's 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 a big territory to start in to think about <laughs> but Certainly, certainly kindness. I think that's what's, that's what's missing the most in this world is kindness and thoughtfulness and caring, a sense of engagement in the world that, that includes other people and other kinds of people. A sense, I just, I just want people to have the feeling in their heart that other people are, are as good as they are. They have the same hopes and fears, the same dreams, the same worries, that basically we really so much alike, all of us, and that they could only experience that or, or get to feel that or get to understand that and to care about that. I think that's the thing I would want the very most. I think the world would look, would look beautiful to me. 
if we could ever get there. And I think your approach to it is one person at a time. It's just, you know, one of us talking to one other of us and hoping that we can convince another one of us until we can, well, that we can actually feel what that other person is feeling. That's what I really want. And that's around the world. Yeah, I love that. I totally agree with that. One of the things that helped me along the way in my journey was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, reading a book by Bill Bryson titled a short history of nearly everything. Yeah, I remember this. It was wonderful. It's a, it, did you read it? Do you remember? Did you read yes, that book? Yes, I remember. I love that book. I, I think I read it twice, which is a rare thing for me, but just really very well done, very thoughtful, very classically Bill Bryson. But one of the things that's one of the facts that stuck with me was his, his declaration that based on the number of people walking the earth and the number of plagues and the number of, you know, things that have happened we we all are related like the math the math doesn't support that there were completely different you know vernal pools with with different starter kits of people like the math basically proves that we are all from the same root stock and therefore that's why i call myself a globalist like i'm we're all we're all one family like you know like and 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 therefore and therefore you know when you see a stranger on the street they're not actually a stranger you know they're actually a part of your family and you know helping people is, is sort of necessarily a part of of part of how you how you should live you know and that anyway that's how it's that's how i sort of i don't know process it i guess well you know i bless you for that because you know you've done your work you've evolved in such fantastic ways as I hope everybody is evolving. And today I'm hoping, you know, I'm hoping that some people are seeing another another life, another kind of life. And uh, that's my hope for the future. It's, I feel just like you do, like I'm part of a, a big family. I'm part of a big sisterhood. I'm part of a big personhood. I'm part of a big global thing. And when you look at it that way, your, your own things fall into place, I think, in a better perspective. Totally agree. Well, Billy, our time is up. I love you tons. I appreciate you on so many levels. And I know the people listening will will as well. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your truth, a little bit about your life. I love you. I love you too, Chris. You're just so, so special. And I'm so happy that you're doing this because I know that technology is a part of this. I know that that's taken us away from one another. Cell phones have taken us away from really being together and talking as persons. People have forgotten how to write. They've forgotten how to talk. They've forgotten how to really listen, I think, in a way. And so and so I think, you know, technology has has really been a part of our hardening our hearts because it hasn't opened our hearts. You know, I, I think that it's, uh, well, I want you to write on. Just keep writing. Write on. I will keep writing. All right, I'll let you go. I love you tons and I'll be in touch really soon. Okay, bye. Bye, sweetie. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. 
Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today. And I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead. 